Culloden Moor, as it is known the world over, or Dromossi Moor, is the site of the last great battle to have taken place on British soil. On the morning of 16th April 1746, the Jacobite army, loyal to Charles Edward Stuart, a.k.a. Bonnie Prince Charlie, was defeated by the Duke of Cumberland and his government troops loyal to the House of Hanover. It was a bitterly cold, wet, and windy day that saw a swift and bloody end to the young pretender's attempts to regain the throne and to reseat a Stuart as a British monarch. Against the advice of some of his most highly regarded aide-de-camps, the decision was made to face the Redcoats on Culloden Moor. It would be a decision that would change British history and the Highland clan system forever. Government troops, the Redcoats, led by Bonnie Prince Charles' cousin, Prince William Augustus, the Duke of Cumberland, also known as Butcher Cumberland, defeated the Jacobites, and over the coming months did all they could to ensure no further uprisings or attempts at the throne could be made. Thousands of Highlanders were executed, murdered, or died in captivity after the battle, and many more were deported. Cumberland was known as the Butcher for the bloody and indiscriminate manner in which he attempted to clear the Highlanders from their own homes. Men were hunted down and executed and their women abused. Their houses were burned and their cattle taken. Regardless of it being a single croft or a whole village, he was determined to cleanse the Highlands. But I'm not here to give you all of that history today. I am here to tell you why there may be ghosts. Hello, hello, and welcome to this bonus episode of Pinky Pod. As I said in the intro before the music, changing it up a little here, maybe I'll even, yeah, I have an urge to maybe check out some new music. Maybe I'll move totally away from the weird and the wacky to something, so I don't know, creepy, soothing. I'll, I'll probably keep that ending music though it's a the lullaby the twisted little lullaby 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 yeah i'm already okay but we'll just see if we get that out of the way right now now where was i as i said in the intro i am not going to get into the the uh history of culloden moor the entire battle that's really deep and I, I would end up wanting to talk about the entire uprising and why it began. I do have some Scottish ancestry. And I'm just not going to try to do that. I do enjoy the thought, though, that sometimes if people listen to shorter episodes like this or I mention a subject, that maybe you will go look into it yourself for more information. 
But having said all that, I am going to give you just a little more, okay? A little, little, little more here. Background. There is an area that contains some carns. It's called the Clava Carns, a.k.a. Balnaran of Clava. And they're very close, maybe less than half a mile southeast of Culloden Battlefield. I'm getting this information, and the information in the intro was read from culloden So at Balaron of Clava, there are three Karns. Two of them are referred to as passage Karns. And the center is known as a ringed Karn. So as the name suggests, the two outer ones have a passage that link the outside to the outside, I think. They're showing photographs here. I almost said, as shown as the photograph. Well, but that's why you will have to come to my Instagram, Pinky underscore podcast, or Twitter at podpinky, because I always put up photographs. Um, the central ringed carn has no passage. So that suggests that once it was built and, quote, used, it then would have been sealed with no intention of re-entering it. So yes, let me give that to you again. The other ones with passages, you can go back outside. You can go in, you can go out, but the other one, it's all sealed off. And the other two cairns being open suggests that possibly it was entered many times after the dead had been placed there. Maybe they came to visit. Uh, maybe they put the dead in there at different points. They are all surrounded by a ring of standing stones, although some stand a bit outside of the general area, and one of them is actually, I guess, separated by a road. The Carns at Clava had lent, have lent their name to an approximate number of around 45 to 50 of these same type of Carns that are all around Inverness and the Narn area. I can't help it. It's, it's N-A-I-R-N. So there are several more that are along the River Narn and throughout the Narn Valley. They tell you here that they are great to visit at any time of year as they are some of the best of their type and the location is beautiful. It sits low in the Narn Valley and is a peaceful spot that is shrouded in trees. The sun rises over the hill behind the viaduct, so early mornings in winter or spring are great, but if you visit on the winter solstice on December 22nd, the setting sun aligns with the passageways of the two passage cairns, the ones with the openings. So Clava Cairns is thought to date to either early Neolithic times or even late Bronze Age. So that would go back about 4,000 years. They are considered to be some of the best examples of these types of cairns. And you can go to Historic uh, Scotland also website for more information on those. But I mentioned them because that would be a good place for there to be hauntings. Yes, yes. Uh, I want to tell you a little more about it following some of their other links. There is an area known as St. Mary's Well, and it's in the heart of Culloden Woods. It's called a Clouty Well, also known as Clouty. A clout is another name for a cloth or a rag. So the well is a place where you would take an item of clothing or cloth, clout, I might even be not saying that quite right, it's just the way it's spelled, and you soak it in the well 
and then rub it on whatever ailment you have. Do you got a bruise? Dip it in the well and rub it on your arm. I thought that was very interesting. It um, didn't have to be a specific illness if you were though. You could just be having bad feelings towards someone. Like you might be having a grudge on someone. So maybe you got to rub it over your whole body or just your head. I don't know. The well is walled which suggests that maybe it would allow bathers some privacy. Maybe you could act like, you know, actually take a bath in the well and benefit from some sort of healing qualities. Now the cloth had to be of a material, the cloth, that through time would break down as that was part of the actual ritual itself, ritual quotes. It would then be hung on a nearby, this says try, I think they might mean tree, <laughs> as an offering to a local spirit fairy or saint. So it was used by people who had illness or ailments or if they had a child with an ailment. The idea is that the local spirit who lived by the well or in a surrounding area would cure the ill and that the clout dis disintegrated and was worn down by the elements. Thus the ailment is vanishing with it and I knew that before they started saying it because I'm a little witchy myself. And plus, it just makes sense. And then the individual would be cured. That that uh, would be kind of a form of, pardon me, form of sympathetic magic. You're, you're rubbing this on yourself and it's taking up the ailment, right? It's not just anointing you. you it's uh, soaking up the ailment, as it were, symbolic. You put it on the, uh, so it's got a bit of you on it as well, putting it on the tree. And as it disintegrates, so too does your ailment go away. Yeah, pretty cool. So cluty wells remain strange or eerie places in some ways. If you visit one, you might notice that the quiet that surrounds the well or the fact that many of the trees surrounding the well have no leaves. You might find it relaxing or exhilarating experience. And you might just think that they're a blot on the landscape. I would never think that, would you, dear listener? But whatever your thoughts, wells do still evoke many emotions today. I think that's true. I, I sometimes, if you find a really old one, right? And then, of course, if you've watched The Ring, it might just freak your shit out. So there are many stories uh, around this particular well of people who used to visit on the first day of May, May Day, hello, and they would wet and tie their clutes and this clutes, I <laughs> just, that's fun to say, and this would ward off evil for the rest of the year. There's pictures here where they're showing, and I don't know how, these, these look like very modern pictures, where there are clutes tied along around the well here and in trees. So people still do it. Um, Beltane was a festival of optimism or good hope. Now they're saying, um, pardon me, I'm getting myself messed up here. I skipped ahead on the paragraph. But May 1st or the same day, the same time frame as Celts celebrated Belchina, Beltane. Some of you listening will know that. So fertility was also associated with it. And, you know, the hope of uh, good fields, planting. Some of us may consider in my own, oh, here we go off on a little side tangent. I wasn't going to. I know a lot of people who are kind of, um, let's just use the generalized term to group pagan, might use specific calendars with, with festivals on very specific days. 
myself, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this. I know I've made posts about it on my social media. I go with the weather. And I, I think that that's very pagan. I think that they would have as well. Uh, a lot of these things weren't always just on a very specific date on the calendar. For example, celebrating the first day of summer on what is actually called midsummer has confused me for a very long time. I'm like, how can it be the first day of summer by the calendar, but it's also a midsummer festival? Yet what? So for me, I consider May 1st more like we're getting into the beginnings of summer. And I'll, I won't tell you all my other dates, but that's where my head is at. And I've even done, if you want to do the math on the calendar to make it four, you know, I go by that. So there's my little digression, just in case you were curious, probably not. So back to this story. So some of the stories uh, talk about children who would be wetted with the water from the well and then left overnight beside the well or in the area close to the well with the hope that they would be cured. <laughs> Must have been kind of weird for the child. So to be left alone in, in the dark woods with cloth hanging all around and then to be told that you were there so the spirits could cure you. But depending on when it was, they probably at the same time thought that was normal. You know, children were growing up with this. Clutie wells uh, date back to pre-Christian times. I feel like that was obvious. Uh, and then again, no, because people still do it. And over the years uh, have diminished, of course, some of them. But quite a few still remain. Two others are close to Inverness, and one lies not far from Moor itself. And the other is at Munlochy on the Black Isle. Munlochy is by far the biggest and more popular well, but St. Mary's, which is the one at Culloden, appears less changed over time. It's in, it's in better condition. And they do tell you here that to reach it, you do make a, a bit of a trek through the forest, to a damp, dark clearing, and it's an eerie but slightly enchanting spot. Now, if you do visit a clutie well, then make sure that your clute is not modern synthetic fiber that won't break down. If you believe in tradition, then something it should be something made from wool or cotton. And, you know, that's just environmentally friendly. So this episode so far is... Uh, I don't really want to call them superstition. It's a little folk magic, little folk magic, and you know, possibly hauntings. A little, little bit of this, a little bit of that around the area. Um, they mention the viaduct. It is an impressive structure that spans the Narn Valley and is built on a curve. There's a picture of that too. It's actually, it definitely is impressive. It was designed by Murdoch Patterson and was opened in 1898. It's the largest of its kind in Scotland with a length of almost 1,800 feet. It is built from sandstone and has 28 arches that are 50 feet wide, each with the only exception being the arch that this 50 feet wide each. The only exception, sorry, being the arch that spans the river, which is 100 feet wide. Needed to be bigger. It's crossed many times a day by rail traffic heading to Inverness, the capital of the Highlands from the southern stations of Scotland's rail network. It's used by both commuter trains, freight trains, and is well worth a look if you're anywhere near. This is part Travel Channel episode. And they, they describe the photograph for you here. The viaduct 
Oh, there's a really cool picture of a old school choo-choo train on it too. I like trains. I don't know about you, but I, I will share them. So the viaduct lies east to the east of Culloden Battlefield and Balnaran of Clava or the Clava Cairns. It uh, has category A listed status. I'm not sure what that means. Over the years, there have been thousands of trains that is that have traveled the length of this viaduct. And uh, I think that would be fun to watch. So I've covered that from colodonmore.net. It's C-U-L-L-O-D-N-M-O-O-R.net. Okay? And they've got a few different things here. They also say straight up that they're not here to try to give a, a deep history dive into it. And they provide links to other places for that really deep history on it. Uh, they, they mention how it's uh, well documented and we do not feel obliged to write our own description of events when there are so many other great sites. So National Trust for Scotland uh, is who takes care. Uh, Culloden Battlefield is under their care. Okay, so that's probably a good uh, website you can go to. Uh, I'm looking at a picture of a, in, in a massive piece of stone where it says the Battle of Culloden was fought on this moor, 16th April, 1746. The graves of the gallant Highlanders who fought for Scotland and Prince Charlie are marked by the names of their clans. And I accidentally hit my wine glass, but that, that kind of was good, like bing! It was excellent timing. Now, is the moor haunted? Well, the first thing I want to read from is uh, hauntedhovel.com, and they have a little piece here on Culloden Moor. The ghosts who choose to linger at Culloden Moor are all those of the soldiers who died at the battle that day, but all ghosts seem to be from the Jacobite forces. The most active time for paranormal activity is on the anniversary of the battle, and this is me cutting in to say that I believe that they were, people do refer to the anniversary ghosts. Many people report seeing soldiers on the moor or lying dead on the ground. Also, the sounds of gunfire and the clanking of swords have often been heard. Let me put this into a little bit of perspective for you. You're American, you know about the Civil War and you know Gettysburg and places like that. And, and even if you're not into watching ghost shows, paranormal, uh, you know, investigations and stuff, you have probably at least heard in passing the thousands and thousands of people who died there. And I think that even people who don't necessarily believe in ghosts are like, well, if any place was going to be, it was going to be a place like that because so many people died there. Such a traumatic event, right? That's one of the reasons given for there to be ghosts somewhere. And this is a mass casualty event. Well, so is the Jacobite uprising. The, that then eventually goes to the Culloden Moor final battle. Mass casualty event. And it, but it wasn't all on one day, okay? They hunted down and chased down people even after they surrendered. It would be considered war crimes. And I said I wasn't going to get into all the history and I'll get worked up about it. But um, the butcher committed war crimes. So... They talk about hearing the sounds of gunfire and swords. One of the spirits that seems to be seen at any time is that of a tall Scottish warrior who has been witnessed walking around the moor after dark, wearing a tartan kilt and staring at the ground as he paces through the grass. Another side note here. Um, 
kilts that probably would have been a great kilt the type i forget how many yards of fabric that you wrap around yourself and now i could be getting my this is 1746 because they were not standardized oh now i don't remember exactly when they were standardized hello google okay the first thing that popped up scottishtartans.org because I want to get my dates properly here. Uh, what what we see now is your clan colors that have been standardized. You know, I have clan colors. I don't have the kilt, but I, you know, I've seen them and they're pretty. Uh, was not always the case. If I am recalling off the top of my head with before I even read this, you could tell where what area somebody might be from based on some colors of their clothing or the great kilts as you might want to call it because of the things they had access to to create the dyes so different areas might have different color of dye they might use different flowers different plants different okay you follow so i'm going to read what they say here if you were to go back in time and visit the Highlands of Scotland about a thousand years ago, you wouldn't see anyone wearing anything that remotely resembles the modern kilt. The standard garment of the Gael, both in the Highlands of Scotland and Ireland, was a tunic called a len, L-E-I-N-E. This is simply the Gaelic word for shirt, and the styles varied according to the time period. Initially, it was a rather simple long tunic pulled over the head, and it was worn long by the women and either long or to the knee by men. By the 16th century, the len had evolved into a rather elaborate garment that was very full. It had sleeves that hung down to the knees. I'm, I'm blanking on the word. I know what those are. I'm picturing it. And dagged? Dagged. I think it's dagged and styles that were either a pullover or that wrapped around and closed like a bathrobe. So the most common color was saffron, although other colors were possible and they were very often undyed. Now over this, for warmth, a woolen shawl or wrap could be worn. Thus, this mantle was called a brat in Ireland, B-R-A-T, and in later centuries was called plaid, plaid, that's where you're getting the word P-L-A-I-D in Scots Gaelic, but it originally meant blanket. So though the tartan was not as common in Scotland then as it was in later times, the wraps could have been some sort of tartan pattern as there is archaeological evidence of tartan cloth being worn in Scotland from the third or fourth century. So now we get to the big one that I was talking about, the belted plaid. It's this tartan wrap that later evolved into the kilt. The fashion in the 16th century Gaelic Scotland was for very full clothing. The idea was the more fabric you wear in your clothing, the more affluent you must, must be, which is often the case in uh, clothing. You know, they say that the uh, clothes say a lot about the person or the clothes make the man or the woman, and you might just think that's some stupid shit, but it did. Or it told people who you were. Side note, high heels were made for men. I think I've mentioned that in other podcasts. They were made for men. It was in, it was in great part a, a sign of status. Status. Of course, men also wore stockings. Okay? And wigs. And I could derail this into a modern anti-misogynistic <laughs> rant, but I won't. Oh, also, men wore makeup. 
So just deal with it. Okay. Where was I? <laughs> yes, I'm feeling a little spicy. I'm feeling a little saucy. With the cost of wool began to drop, dropping towards the uh, end of the 16th century in Scotland, the woolen wraps or plaids began to grow larger with the fashion. So more people had access to them. At a certain point, they began to gather these large wraps into folds and belt them around the waist. And that is what you call the belted plaid. In Gaelic, it was called either filad moor, which means great wrap. I, I used to know Scottish pronunciation and I probably did that wrong. Or bracan an filra, fila. Ugh, sorry, my Scottish people. I used to know how to say these better, but it means tartan wrap. In modern parlance, they are often referred to as what you heard me say a few moments ago, great kilts. So the earliest mention of this garment comes from Life of Red Hugh O'Donnell, written in Irish Gaelic in 1594. This work describes Scottish mercenaries from the Hebrides being noticeable among the, you guys will read that as Hebrides, but that's not how you say it as I recall. And it was noticeable among the Irish because of the difference in their dress. Scots wore their belts outside their mantles, the belted plaid. So since I'm already on this tangent, the garment was about four to six yards long and on average 50 to 60 inches wide. And it was made from two lengths of 25 to 30 inch wide cloth sewn together, okay, two panels. The length of the cloth was gathered up and belted at the waist with the lower part hanging above the knees and the upper part was brought up to the shoulders and could be arranged in any number of ways. There were many different ways of wearing the belted plaid and this garment was the ubiquitous dress of the Highland men during the 17th and first half of the 18th centuries. Isolated instances of the use can be found as late as 1822, but likely ceremonial because it had long ceased to be part of daily dress. The female version was the arasad, which contained somewhat less cloth which was worn long to the ankles and usually made from a white tartan with a wide space setting. So it, at this point, it's becoming synonymous with Highland dress, though plaids in solid colors were also worn as seen in a 1618 portrait of the chief of the Campbells of Lacan. There's something here called a filabeg. So if the belted plaid is the grandfather of the modern kilt, then filabeg is the father. That is the anglicized spelling of the Gaelic filedbeg. Filedbeg, I know I'm still saying it. F-E-I-L-E-A-D-H hyphen B-E-A-G. And it means little wrap. So that refers to the garment that is the lower half of the belted plaid. So some people today actually do call the modern kilts filabegs. But the original one was untailored. It consisted of a length of cloth, usually about four yards long, but only 25 inches wide. So again, it was just the lower portion of that belted plaid and it could be gathered loosely and it was into folds and belted around the waist. The bottom reached just above the knee and the top overlapped the top of the belt a little bit. Uh, sometimes another length of cloth, which, which would have been the upper part of the belted plaid, might be worn separately. I almost picture it like a shawl or... I don't know, giant scarf. Uh, there's a lot of debate about the, the age of the filibag. I'm not going to get into all that. Although people, I will say this, which was the whole reason for me looking it up. It was definitely uh, worn in the 18th century. The used 
declined after the 1790s. And I was reading all this to be like, were they wearing the great kilt with a plaid, you know, or a tartan? So the kilt itself is, of course, tailored and has the pleats and the pleats are sewn down. So the first use, the first instance, they say, that we have of this is the military in the 1790s. Okay, so let's go back, shall we? The 1790s. What made me look this whole thing up? Okay, so here we are speaking of the ghost wearing a tartan kilt and staring at the ground as he paces through the grass. Some people have claimed to have gotten quite close to him only to hear him mumble the word defeated. Here's my problem with that. He, he probably, if this is... Um, if this is a Jacobite, he probably would have said it in Gaelic. Now, this doesn't say whether or not people here are hearing it in Scottish, but I would assume that you would be. I could be wrong. I'm not saying they couldn't have spoken English as well, but it seems strange. Carrying on, there are also some more extreme stories of the ghost here, such as an old story from the 1930s of a woman who claims that she saw a tartan cloth covering one of the graves, but upon lifting it, she saw the apparition of a heavily wounded Highlander lying beneath. Now, I could see that, you know. He was uh, injured and, and freezing and dying and covered himself up, or somebody did. The wells around the area are also thought to be quite haunted, which brings me to St. Mary's well and that the one I told you all about the blessings people try to get there from it and still do, and the clout. <laughs> it seems to have the most uh, sightings associated with it as far as uh, the wells, any of the wells. The reason for the wells being haunted is, is only speculated about. People speculate that the government forces threw wounded Highlanders down in the wells to drown them because it was not normally used by English troops. There's a common story about how birds are said to never sing in the area around the greys, perhaps not being able to sing in an area which has seen so much pain. The, the person here says, I don't know if this is true as I have never been to the site. And he asks that you send a message to let him know if it's true. Now I am at uh, the ghosthuntuk.com. They talk about ghost hunting at Culloden Moor. And it's home to an outstanding amount of paranormal activity, they say, but it's rarely investigated due to the vast, vast size. Gettysburg is, even though it's famous, I would say the same thing. There's just so much area to cover. Uh, the most active part of the, the moor, as far as they know it here, is the site of the mass burial of the fallen Highlanders, where they were unceremoniously thrown in with nothing more to mark their final resting place than a slab of stone or a clan emblem. Countless photographs have been taken around the site with visible, unexplainable phenomena in the photos, along with many eyewitnesses hearing the battle almost reenacted with screams and cries of the warriors from both sides. Men are seen wandering the moor in native tartan, but they look out of place as if they were from a bygone era and then disappearing at the turn of your head. Perhaps the most spine-chilling part of the grave is that birds are never heard singing here. There are a lot of scattered locations around the mill, such as Old Leech Cottage, where 20 Jacobites were later found after fleeing the battle with their wounds. They were locked inside of the barn along with the families who harbored them and burned alive. You want to know something crazy? I've heard that story. I've heard that story. Or 
Maybe I should say there's probably a lot of stories like that. Not a lot has been recorded in this particular part of the moor, probably due to the pure lack of investigation, but those who have entered have reported poltergeist activity, often fleeing in terror or being pushed out the front door. Are the residents still trying to defend themselves? This page also speaks of the wells around the area. And again, they mentioned uh, St. Mary's well, the Clutie well, that is possibly haunted by ghosts of dead Highlanders. They talk about it being a cure for ailments, etc. Around the ancient wells, people have reported a wandering man with no wounds to, with wounds to his head, pardon me. That would make no sense. Why would you point it out if there weren't? With wounds to his head, slowly staggering up to visitors, whispering the word defeated, and then vanishing into thin air. So there it is again. I feel like it would be in Scottish. What if it's not? from the battle at all and it's somebody that tried to have an ailment cured and it didn't work <laughs> oh my god right uh let's find some more this is also a hauntedrooms.co.uk they talk a little bit more about the battle the chances of them succeeding were slim to non-existent as it was the boggy ground was not suited to the highland charge and on top of that the government forces vastly outnumbered them and they were also exhausted after several days marching back from England where they had tried to drum up support for the battle. See, I, I, I mentioned the Jacobite uprising before. It did not begin here. It ended here. Um, they had actually gone marching from Scotland, as I recall, all the way almost to um, England or maybe made it over close to London. And for reasons that when I was somewhat studying it not like in a class or anything but years ago at that time as far as I knew we didn't know why they turned around nobody knew why they turned around and started marching back after all that time if anybody listening knows let me know I mean I can look it up but when I was reading about it you know when I used to read a lot about this stuff it was a bit of a mystery there. I'm, I know that there are theories, but a bit of a mystery why they actually turned around after marching so far. Okay. And the, uh, the Jacobites are who wanted the Stuarts back on the throne. And it was just 40 minutes of fighting, 40 minutes, 40 minutes. And the army was defeated, dead, except for the ones that ran off. But then they chased them down. Like I said, war crimes. Bonnie Prince Charlie's army was, was done for. I had also remember reading that they had surrendered, but the uh, other side, the butcher, did not honor it. So the whole thing is disgusting. All right. This said that they were, you know, uh, they were outnumbered, exhausted after several days marching back from England. Uh, in England, they had tried to get support for the battle. Maybe that's one of the reasons that they started coming back. They weren't getting support. I don't know. The battle started with a flurry of artillery fire from both sides, and it quickly became a one-sided affair as the government troops vastly outnumbered and outskilled the Jacobite forces. In 20 minutes of artillery fire, the Jacobite lines were almost completely decimated. I, people use decimated as obliterated, and the fact that they said completely decimated, I'm guessing that they mean obliterated. Deci is 10. Just FYI. Yes, it's a peeve of mine. Don't say decimated when you mean obliterated. Bonnie Prince Charlie was sitting out of the battle, so they had nobody to take charge, and the hesitations proved to be their downfall. 
They took it upon themselves then to charge the government troops. The troops that managed to escape the artillery, artillery fire from the government troops were cut down as soon as they hit enemy lines. Again, they were outfought and outclassed as government troops used a new method of attack against the Highland charge. Each soldier drove his sword or bayonet into the Highlander, directly facing the soldier to his right so they could pierce underneath the Highlander's sword arm. The slaughter continued after the men were wounded and unable to fight. Government troops executed every single man they could find, and ones that managed to get away were hunted, hunted down and slaughtered. Now, Prince Charlie, Bonnie Prince Charlie, evaded the pursuing forces for five months throughout the Highlands until he escaped to Italy via the Isle of Skye, never to return. Shame. On the anniversary of the bloody battle, 16th April, 1746, Ghosts of soldiers who died there are said to rise again, and the cries of the wounded and clanking steel of weapons are heard. So again, you know, same thing. They mention again here, this he must be very famous because the, the, the tall man with drawn features in tartan roaming the area, when you approach him, he's mumbling the word defeated. Uh, they talk about the woman who found a cloth covering one of the grave mounds. Birds never sing. They talk about the well. It's a lot of the same uh, stories over and over. So I'm going to take a uh, very easy guess that this is uh, the, the most common tales. Do we, do we dare go to the sun.co.uk? Terrified locals live in fear of Culloden Moore's anniversary ghosts. Spectral soldiers who appear from thin air to fight each other every year on April 16th. Of course, they gotta have a bombastic title. Uh, the Battle of Culloden was the bloody clash between the Jacobite rebels and the ruling house of Hanover. Yes. They do have a picture here of um, just a little rock. It says Clan Fraser. I, I, I wonder if people actually live in fear of it. The um, Visit Scotland reports that walkers on the moor have seen terrifying visions of ghostly soldiers near the graves of fallen Jacobites. And boy, they really talk about the birds never singing here. Birds never sing here. Birds never sing here. That would be pretty eerie, though, I have to say. If, you're, if you've ever been anywhere where you suddenly stopped and realized that you're not hearing any animals or birds. Yeah, I've had that happen. It's really creepy. Since they mentioned uh, VisitScotland.com. Okay, I had the Culloden battle up. Then all of a sudden the page switched to the Queen of Scottish Witches. Well, okay. Why not? Because I don't think there's much else to say about as far as ghosts. Since it popped up, fine. Let's do it. Throughout the 16th and 17th century, Scotland was gripped by witchcraft hysteria. Untold numbers of women accused of uh, practicing black magic. I've done a couple, at least a couple episodes about specific Scottish witches. Now, they mentioned burnt at the stake. Not necessarily. Not all of them. So there's one named Isabel Gowdy, a farmer's wife. There was nothing about Isabel that struck anyone as evil. Described as strikingly lovely with a mane of crimson hair, Gowdy lived an unassuming life in the highland village of Aldern until one fateful day she fell under suspicion of dabbling in the occult. This was not wholly unusual for the time. 
Women were commonly accused of being in league with the devil over the most minor of transgressions and sometimes complete falsehoods. This is where I point out that in some areas in Scotland, though, even if you were convicted, they didn't kill you. I know that is one of the stories I did. She, there, there was one that was accused many times and actually... Uh, what did she do? Oh God, what was her name? And she represented herself in court and everything and didn't get in trouble. Like, yeah, slay girl, you're a queen. So anyway, Gowdy's uh, vivid confession detailing the exploits of herself and her coven is different. Apparently she gave this confession freely without being tortured. She painted a lurid picture of how she and her cohorts were bestowed with their supernatural powers from the queen of the fairies. Well, that sounds lovely. Gowdy boasted of how they transformed into animals, chanted spells to summon tempests, and flew to their sabbats on brooms of rushes and corn stalks. She even boasted of using voodoo doll-like effigies. Uh, dude, they're not voodoo. I know you're speaking to a modern audience, but back, back there it wouldn't have been that. More like a, let's say, poppet to cast hexes on children and exhuming corpses to make har harvest fail. Were these the ravings of a mad woman or a desperate bid for leniency through voluntary confession? No record of her execution exists. Some otherworldly forces were at work allowing Gowdy to vanish without a trace and pass into legend forevermore, they say. <laughs> okay, have I just found, hopefully, a podcast episode, but then there might not be much about her. Ah, uh, that's all it says. That's all it says. The Queen of Scottish Witches. Location, Aldir, near Narn, Highlands. Ha <laughs> ha! How do you like that? It's very close. Here we go. Here's their page on uh, Culloden. And they just say the exact same thing. So, it sounds like, basically, if you were to visit there and you were just going for ghosts, be on the lookout for a lot of, sadly, dead Highlanders. Okay, watch, watch for kilts, I guess. Well, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I, closer to Braveheart than the modern, okay? Don't kill me for that, just to give people a picture. A little bit closer to that. And that, my lovelies, I think will be the end of this little bonus goofy episode that somehow says I've been recording for an hour, but that's impossible. This isn't an hour of material. I think my counter is off. So thanks for listening. Find me on all the socials. Uh, I did my first video podcast episode. It is buymeacoffee.com slash pod for just $2. One time, one time tip of $2. You uh, can access the link to watch it. That was uh, hard for me. It took a lot of time. I don't like being on camera. And I had issues. Issues with uh, getting the, uh, I, I, I took two different videos at the same time. And I that's mentioned on Friday's podcast. So like, share, comment. Uh, if you can't, you know, um, if you don't have the money or do it, that's cool. That's fine. Rate the podcast. That would be great. But send me some stories too. And, you know, ghost stories, uh, Bigfoot, aliens, whatever. If you think it's cool, send it to me. Sroyt at PinkySquarePress.com. And I will share them on an episode if you like. Okay. Thanks for listening. Boop, boop, boop,